Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're starting to see some breakdowns of the number of folks who are newly insured under the Affordable Care Act. A report by the Urban Institute's Health Reform Monitoring Service showed that by March 7th of this year, 5.4 million Americans who had previously been uninsured gained coverage. And those numbers were compiled before the massive surge at the end of the open enrollment period. Well, Mark, there had been some speculation as to just how many enrollees on the insurance marketplaces were simply switching from one health plan to perhaps a cheaper one on the exchange. But what this report shows that's so important is how many uninsured Americans have now gotten coverage under this effort. And it's also important to note that the Medicaid expansion had an effect on the uninsured rate. Not surprisingly, those states that chose to expand Medicaid saw their uninsured rate drop dramatically during the open enrollment period, about 4%, whereas states who didn't expand Medicaid also saw a 1.5% drop in the number of uninsured. And not only does that leave a lot of Americans without coverage, but those are the states that still have a relatively high rate of uninsured residents as a result of failing to expand Medicaid, over 18% on average. And that is just a shame for those low-income folks who will still have a difficult time navigating and getting access to health care. And that's bound to have an impact on population health. In those states that expanded Medicaid, the uninsured rate dropped down to 12.4%, so a real significant difference in those communities. The Urban Institute report really provides an interesting snapshot of the national breakdown of the health care laws beneficiaries and how difficult the experience has been for Americans based just on where they live in the country. So the wrap-up numbers, uh, and still counting, uh, 7.1 million Americans who gained coverage on the insurance exchanges and more than 3 million Americans gained coverage through the Medicaid expansion. And while the open enrollment period is over for the insurance exchanges until November, Anyone who qualifies for Medicaid can sign up through the uh, year. And I should note, if there's any significant life change for people, they can also get health insurance during that period as well. All in all, more than 10 million Americans are now covered, and that is a very empowering thing. Our guest today is seeking to empower hospitals in their quest to create some kind of interoperability among their medical devices uh, being used in hospital settings, many of which come from multiple stakeholders and are not designed to communicate easily with other systems feeding into the electronic medical records. Ed Cantwell is the executive director of the Center for Medical Interoperability and has an extensive background in developing efficient telecommunication systems. And he has a very interesting perspective on how this all might work better and where it's already being deployed in a number of areas around the country. We get another visit from Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, always on the hunt for misstatements spoken in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Ed Cantwell in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Advantage, Medicare Advantage. Under enormous pressure from insurance industry lobbyists and those representing seniors and the medical profession, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced there will not be a drop in Medicare Advantage plans payments as originally planned under the Affordable Care Act, at least not next year. Instead, payments are scheduled to go up about 1%. 
proposed cuts to Medicare Advantage plans, which serve 16 million seniors, about 30 percent of all Medicare beneficiaries. The federal government had been squeezing rates in recent years to help pay for the health care law implementation. The government subsidizes the coverage and insurers generally offer dozens of different plans in every market. Many come with extras like dental and vision coverage and gym memberships and are not available with standard Medicare. Initially, the health care law sought to reduce funding for Medicare Advantage by $150 billion over 10 years, launching one of the biggest lobbying campaigns ever from the insurance industry. Big insurers see tidy profits from these plans, and the government pays a higher premium to practitioners than reimbursements they provide for traditional Medicare. The American Medical Association has decided not to go to court over the CMS decision to release medical billing information for close to 900,000 physicians, though it still strongly opposes the measure. Considered the mother load of information on doctors, the Medicare claims database has been off limits to the public for decades, blocked in the courts by physician groups who argue its release would do more harm than good. Employers, insurers, media organizations, and consumer groups interested in physician quality have been pressing the government to open up those files. Last week, the Obama administration announced it would do so. Drug overdoses now kill more adults than car accidents, about 16,000 per year. And the worst culprit, other than heroin, are opioids and prescription drug abuse. The Food and Drug Administration approved a long-awaited emergency drug overdose treatment that family or community members can easily use to treat someone who has overdosed. The device is called Esvio, a pocket-sized auto-injector filled with the opioid antidote naloxone. Its approval is a boon for drug advocates who've long sought faster response options for drug overdoses. It's also a rare example of a fast action from the FDA. Naloxone is already the standard treatment for overdose, but existing versions of the drug have to be administered via syringe and are generally only employed by trained medical professionals. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Ed Cantwell, Executive Director of the Center for Medical Interoperability, which was launched by the Gary and Mary West Foundation, West Health Institute. The center's purpose is to optimize patient care by advancing the safety, quality, and affordability by serving as a focal point for hospitals and health systems to drive rapid, widespread, sustainable interoperability of medical technologies. Mr. Cantwell is considered a pioneer in the global in-building wireless space and former director of 3M Corporation's Wireless Business Unit and Mr. Cantwell helped develop several communication systems for Texas Instruments and spent 12 years as a fighter pilot flying F-15s. Mr. Cantwell graduated from the University of Michigan's Executive Training Program. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering from Duke. Mr. Cantwell, we're happy that you're here with us on Conversations on Healthcare. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. And at the West Health Institute, you now you've been doing a number of things trying to improve delivery and reduce cost by promoting the development of low-cost technologies in healthcare. And the Institute's determined that the lack of interoperability between the electronic devices operating within the healthcare setting wastes about $30 billion per year. That's real money, and that these costs are especially high in hospitals. So you just recently uh, put out a white paper that there are relatively few hospitals, it's always surprising across the country, that have gotten the interoperability right. And So maybe for our listeners, could you lay the scope of the problem out for us and define interoperability, if you will, and what are the biggest challenges in making these devices talk to each other? Well, the best definition of interoperability is the ability 
for health information to be seamlessly shared across medical devices and enterprise systems for the purpose of optimizing healthcare. And it's not so much that uh, hospitals and health systems have not gotten it right. It's more that hospitals and health systems have not had the opportunity to embrace interoperability because of the lack of standard-based technical platforms and architectures that would allow it. You know, what I love about the mission of the center is at its core, it's patient-centered. So let's just use us as an example. We are the, the unit economic of healthcare, the patient. And if you think about the uh, continuum of patient data flow, whether you're at home or whether you're in a car, whether you're at work, or whether you're in the hospital, you want your data to flow from device to system to electronic medical record to health information exchange so that care is optimized and safety is the number one priority. So the challenge is one, I think everybody understands that our U.S. healthcare system, we have misaligned incentives. We've allowed an ecosystem that has limited adoption of standards, many of which use HIPAA or safety as a reason not to adopt standards, which has led to a pervasively proprietary ecosystem where equipment is is proprietary and data is held hostage to those proprietary systems. We have the dilemma of the impracticality of government mandates. On the one hand, you want the government to be very forceful. On the other one, you know, the industry does not want government to come in and run it. Unlike most other vertical markets, healthcare is highly complex in almost every dimension. But what was evident to us in our study, about $30 billion, is that in the event interoperability is achieved, the hospitals and health systems will be the biggest beneficiary. So that is why we're trying to rally them to step up to not only uh, creating the demand for interoperability, but backing it with the procurement of the equipment. Well, Ed, you've, among the many, many things in your career, you've flown fighter planes. In your career, a system that requires a tremendous amount of interoperability, one would assume, and it's fairly life or death. Uh, And our healthcare system, of course, is very complicated and a matter of life or death, but so hard to change as a entire system across the country. I wonder when you think about the changes that are needed to bring about this interoperability and where does it come from? You certainly talked about the the difficulty sometimes of government mandates and standards, but I think of where we were 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when the Office of the National Coordinator took on the challenge of moving providers, not so much the hospitals even, but providers in, in practice from paper records to electronic health records. And there were a series of things that flowed from that in policy through meaningful use and financial incentives, then you could see where an entire system across the country began to move forward. What are the what are the analogous changes to bring about the interoperability that we need in healthcare? Well, I'll use my military flying days to as a very simple analogy. The U.S. Air Force or the U.S. Navy did not leave it up to the vendors on what kind of airplane to deliver or what kind of ships to buy. There was a full-time dedicated 
resource within the services to define exactly why fighter or what ship was needed. So that's very analogous to healthcare. And then they ensured that the competition to provide that airplane was as open as possible. And then when the competition uh, actually occurred, there was a very scripted way to test and certify that you actually made the, the requirements. So we feel that there's been so much work done over the last 10 years by the government and by, by the industry in general, but we feel it's now time for the leaders of our hospitals and health systems, which have the responsibility to deliver care, to take a more proactive role in creating and, and driving medical interoperability. So if you look at critical infrastructure, whether it's electricity or whether it's plumbing or whether it's or the telecom industry, virtually all other critical infrastructures have achieved the point at which there's an agreed-upon master architecture that is based on standards, and it has very clear requirements, and it has a, a proven path to show compliance to those requirements. So imagine if electricity did not have that stability. That would scuttle all of the innovation that has occurred in all of the wonderful electrical appliances. Well, as healthcare transitions from a tethered healthcare environment to an untethered, and we need that same type of discipline. You know, our three buzzwords are connected, you have to be interoperable, and then you have to be trusted. And with those three attributes, you really can evolve to the connected health platform that really is, shows the promise to address the high cost of healthcare while improving patient safety. I, I always thought that HL7 was sort of part of that platform to make things interoperable. It still doesn't seem like we've gotten the type of results that we want. You talked about the military and the sort of the alignment that they have of with what they're trying to do, and we seem to have missed that across the board. We've done a show on La Carte Vitale in France where they simply sort of spec'd out, here's what we're going to have for EMRs, and they were able to do it. America, though, is a different culture. Military is a different culture. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about the work that you've done also on wireless system. You've developed a hospital wireless system. Tell us how that functions and, and uh, how does it work differently than others? Well, wireless is so unique when it comes to the healthcare vertical because the use of wireless in a hospital environment is the most complex and life critical of any wireless environment on the planet. And the reason it's so is that if you think about a hospital, it has three main uses of wireless. Use by the consumer. The enterprise of healthcare has to use wireless to run their enterprise. And then we are seeing the explosion of medical devices that want to untether you know, from the wall that have a medical grade use. So as a young entrepreneur who found himself where healthcare was a key vertical market, I was just amazed that there was no established infrastructure specification for how do you employ wireless inside of that environment. So imagine if you will, what if there were no plumbing standards or electrical standards that a hospital owner could rely on to make sure that the vendors delivered a platform that worked with assurance. So over the last three years, when Gary Mary established the Institute, you know, I was a very vocal advocate that 
healthcare needed to stand up and make wireless a medical grade utility so that the power of wireless across consumer enterprise and medical uses could be fully exploited. And the neat thing is when you do that, you can master wireless in the hospital, then you're more likely to trust it out of the hospital on the way to your home. And then inside your home, you're watching wireless absolutely transform the way we live. And that power needs to be applied to healthcare. So it was simply an, an initiative. Let's get the people that can define it and embrace it that will eventually procure it. And let's drive it to become the next base building standard like electricity. And if that could be done, you reduce so much of the risk and you improve safety and you allow innovation to flourish. Well, I like all of those action verbs. Let's do it. And somebody has to want to. And obviously, you've brought some of those folks together at the Institute. But, you know, I, I can't help thinking uh, we're only a week out from another little foray in healthcare down a dead end, which was the conversion to the ICD-10, right? The uh, diagnostic classification from 9 to 10, which was we have to do it. The rest of the world's done it. We're absolutely doing it. There will be no delays. And then we kick the can down the road for another year. What is, what's the driving urgency at the Institute? And maybe you could share with us who is coming together at the Institute who wants to embrace it and drive it and go for it. So to be precise, within the West Health Institute, for the last three years, we've studied the macro level problem. And it is a combination of a technical problem. It's a political problem. It's an ecosystem problem. And because of the generosity of Gary Mary West, who really challenged us to, to go after something big. So from an interoperability point of view, we felt like if a force could be established to really champion interoperability, that would have the greatest impact per or $30 billion per year potential savings. So when the Center for Medical Interoperability was conceived, it wasn't conceived as a West Health Institute activity, but this has to be and will be a separate nonprofit entity whose members are the hospitals and health system executives in hospitals so that the industry itself, like all other industries, steps up and takes control of it. There are some great examples. The cable industry did this about 30 years ago, and they have taken their industry through waves of innovation, and it's a very financially sound sound model. So the, the Institute, whose mission is to lower the cost of healthcare, considers the center then an implementation strategy for actually making interoperability happen. You know, I certainly have come to the conclusion that like the military forces, if they don't demand it via procurement, the free market won't deliver it. We're speaking today with Ed Cantwell, Executive Director of the Center for Medical Interoperability, whose mission is driving rapid, widespread, and sustainable interoperability of medical technologies to improve safety, quality, and affordability of healthcare. Mr. Cantwell is considered a pioneer in the global in-building wireless space and is former director of the 3M Corporation's Wireless Business Unit. Ed, talked a little bit about cable, and you've talked also about the challenges within the industry of uh, sort of aligning the standards. Give us a little more global sort of look. Are there care delivery systems around the world that are 
better integrated because they have a national health systems or they have the alignments that you were talking about? And are there emerging and third world markets poised to sort of leapfrog over us? And I think we've kept a, a good eye on M Health and all of the initiatives that have been going on around the world. And uh, there seems to be a lot of leapfrogging going on. So where do, where do you see the beacons of interest around the world in terms of interoperability, where it might be functioning well, and, and who might we learn from and who might be leading the way? Well, certainly interoperability is a global issue. Business models and regulatory environments are different all over the world. Uh, also, cultures are different in the way decisions are made. And obviously, more centralized governments uh, are poised to just make it a mandate. You know, we have some wonderful engineers from Asia who just, you know, look at us and say, why doesn't the government just mandate it? But we also know that we don't want to throttle innovation. Pervasively, we want the free market. So I'm not sure that any country has aced interoperability. Even the new ones that aren't hamstrung by the legacy problem perhaps that the U.S. has, and can start anew, find themselves where they could produce a very connected, pervasively wireless environment. But unless the devices, the millions of devices, allow the data to flow from the device to the HR, then all that connectivity really is for naught. So I, I believe it's a global problem. I believe that there are certain strengths around the world. Singapore is a good example. But like the global telecom industry, it takes the global industry over time to come together so that we can, you know, if you land in London and you have a medical emergency, that your data flows right there with you. So we will focus pervasively on solving the U.S.'s problem and then certainly we'll learn from other countries and share what we learn with others. Well, back in the U.S. while we're solving our our national problem, I wonder if you just opine for us on the role of the policy and regulations here in the country with regard to this area. But we had uh, a guest from the FDA, or a guest speaking about the FDA recently with their new rules governing apps, which have uh, exploded into the tens of thousands of medical healthcare related apps and tracking devices. Have you engaged those policy folks uh, with your work at the Institute? And what do you see as some of the key sort of regulatory policy areas that are going to be developing over the next couple of years in the realm of interoperability? Well, we certainly have engaged across the board the regulatory agencies because we know that they are critical to the success of interoperability. You know, the pace of change and complexities inherent to healthcare technology add to the challenge of developing those sound policies and regulations and striking the right balance between protecting patient safety and fostering innovation will remain essential. Remember, the mission of the FDA is to do no harm. It's not to do innovation. So right. we have to, to struggle in, in the unique relationship with the FCC and the FDA as it relates to the use of wireless is really an, an emerging industry. We need approaches that focus on a learning healthcare system where timely feedback mechanisms, shared responsibility. So we're a big believer that it's going to take the .govs, the .coms, and the .orgs working together to optimize our healthcare system. Uh, we also know that the payer 
structure in the U.S. contributes to it because most people really don't know what anything costs because of the lack of transparency. We know malpractice reform, credentialing are, are also big buckets. So in the formation of the Center for Medical Interoperability, we spent a good two years with the regulatory agencies understanding what role could the center play so that the government could play its role. If instantaneously Congress mandated interoperability, there would be no way to test and certify to it. So it really takes the ecosystem coming together, the government playing their role, and the vendors playing their role uh, We've been speaking today with Ed Cantwell, Executive Director of the Center for Medical Interoperability. You can learn more about their work by going to medicalinteroperability.org. Ed, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we spotted a false attack in West Virginia in an ad that claims Republican Evan Jenkins, quote, vowed to repeal black lung benefits. Jenkins didn't do that. Instead, he vowed to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Repealing the ACA would make it more difficult for some minors and surviving spouses to prove eligibility for the federal black lung benefits program, but it wouldn't repeal the benefits. Those were created under a separate law. The ad comes from the House Majority PAC, a super PAC dedicated to returning the Democrats to power in the House. We could find no record of Jenkins ever saying he would repeal black lung benefits, as the ad claims. A spokesman for the PAC argues that Jenkins' support for repealing the ACA is the equivalent of support for repealing black lung benefits. We disagree. It's the Black Lung Benefits Act that provides monthly payments and medical benefits to minors found to be totally disabled from black lung disease caused by working in or at coal mines. Repealing the ACA wouldn't change those payments. However, the ACA included two Byrd Amendments, named after the former Democratic Senator of West Virginia, that made it easier for minors and surviving spouses to get benefits. The amendments shifted the burden of proof in some cases from the minor to the mining company and ended a practice of requiring a widow to reapply for survivor benefits after her husband dies. But the ad leaves viewers with the false impression that Dinkins would abolish all black lung benefits. That's not true. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Chef Carl Gugendmos grew up as a kid in post-war Germany, he lived on a diet of organic and locally grown foods. Now he's the dean of the culinary arts program at Johnson & Wales University in Rhode Island, and he realized that he has a responsibility to teach the next generation of chefs how vital natural and simple ingredients are, not just to creating good food, but to the health of the population as well. 
He watched the obesity epidemic take hold in this country and decided to use his platform to create a new approach to chef training. He teamed up with a professor of medicine at Tulane University Medical School in New Orleans, and together they created what they believe is the first course in culinary medicine in the United States, teaching chefs and fourth-year medical students how to understand the synergy between healthy eating, good food, and good health. We created this program where our students are actually going to Tulane Medical School for an internship, and they work side by side with medical students and physicians using an evidence-based approach to this whole idea of culinary medicine rather than anecdotal. So in addition to learning knife skills, saute and poaching techniques, fourth-year medical students are given a lesson in food pairings, learning which foods are most poised to foster good health and to combat obesity. The medical students, they have their own coursework that we help them develop, and they identify ingredients as to their relationship to health. They then start basic introduction to cooking, from knife skills to basically how to saute, how to poach, how to roast. And then they do recipe conversions, and then they have to do research. And our students are there helping, in, they're engaged, working, writing articles, uh, being part of this whole uh, program, working side by side with the medical students and learning and exchanging information and, and techniques from each other. The results and the responses are incredible. We're hoping to continue that. Dr. Harlan and I have been out speaking about this uh, as a joint, this collaboration between a chef and a physician. It's really unique and it's one of its kind, and I think it's the first around the world, and we're getting more and more traction about this. He strongly believes in the idea that chefs will be the pharmacists of the future. A dean of a reputable culinary program teaming up with a medical school to train future doctors armed with the skills and information to assist their patients in healthier eating, fostering the development of health-conscious chefs who are trained to feed the next generation well with foods that can prevent obesity. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.